how uh, many of you are hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Let's try that again. How many of you are hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? What a hope we have. What a hope we have. It's everything, brothers and sisters. I have nothing to offer you this morning other than Jesus Christ. We've prayed to him. We've sung of him. We've acknowledged him in various ways. The Lord Jesus Christ is our hope this year, next year, and every year. Amen? And I hope that the Lord, through his word, encourages your heart this morning to hold on to that hope and to press in to that hope such that you might be laser-focused and walking by faith and not by sight in the new year. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And this text will serve as the launching point for today's sermon. Some of you are longing to go back to verse-by-verse expository preaching, and we will do that next week. We'll be back in our sermon series in the book of Genesis, but today I have the joy of preaching on whatever I want to preach on. It will be God's Word, but it'll be a few texts. I couldn't boil it down to one, so I selected four to preach on this morning. I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in nothing else. And we give you thanks and praise for enabling us to say that by your Spirit. We're asking that your Spirit would move in our hearts to encourage and vitalize us to strive in the sanctification that has been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage your saints through your word this morning that we might delight in the reality that we serve a God who has promised that we will be completely and totally sanctified. And as we wait that day, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us through your word to be about your business in this short season that we have on this earth. Long though it may seem, Lord, you have given us a few short years on this earth before we are with you forever and ever and ever. So Lord, help us. Help us to think your thoughts after you and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. All for your glory, Lord and for our good, and for the benefit of those under our influence. Have your way in our hearts, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but as we come to the end of another year, I find it incredibly easy to count my shortcomings, my failures, and my mishaps that occurred throughout the year. And I'm aware that my count is off. For I can only count those sins and those errors which I am aware of. 
are so many things that I've said and thought and done throughout the year that I haven't given any second thought to. I'm aware of these sins. And it truly is a grace of God that we do not and that we cannot know the innumerable ways in which we have fallen short this year, not to mention the ways in which we have fallen short throughout our lives. We're weak. Beloved, I am weak. Beloved, you are, are weak. We are frail sinners, are we not? One who is honest and one who is humble and one who trembles at God's word is daily reminded, dare I say, even hourly reminded of his utter dependence on God's grace to do anything at all that is praiseworthy. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But how many of you know that God gives more grace? That God gives more grace to those who trust and rest in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith, we have become children of God. And God the Father never leaves his children as orphans. I'm thankful for that this morning. We just read and heard what I find to be one of the most encouraging passages in all of the New Testament. And I want to frame the rest of this sermon with that text. I want to use this text to, to frame three other texts for this morning's sermon. But it must be clear that this text, and really this sermon, is for Christians. It is for those who celebrated Christmas this year, not so much by focusing on a plethora of gifts and goodies, but rather by celebrating the gift and the goodness of God in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners by living sinlessly for them, by dying a substitutionary death for them, by conquering sin and Satan and death for them all through his resurrection so that all who believe in him will be raised, oh, the glorious day, will be raised to new life when the Lord Jesus returns to earth to judge the living and the dead from heaven where he now is, interceding on behalf of those who love him. This text is for Christians. And my prayer, my exhortation, is that you would more than consider coming to Christ this morning. But that you would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ even now. And if you do, then this message will become yours also. A Christian, precious saint, this text is yours. I need more smiles. This text is yours. This is a promise from God. Paul, by the Spirit, said to the church at Thessalonica, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. A couple of things we must realize before we dive into this text. First, Paul is writing to a young church to encourage them in the basics of Christianity. That's what he's doing in 1 Thessalonians. And sometimes, saints, we need to be reminded of and encouraged in the basics of the faith, don't we? That's my goal this morning. That's what I intend to do this morning, just to remind and encourage us of the simple things of the faith. Second, this text 
if interpreted without the awareness of its immediate context, can lead one to believe in what I'm going to call total passive sanctification. That is, the text says, may God sanctify you completely, and then it says, well, he'll surely do it. Therefore, I just got to sit around and wait for God to do his thing, right? Wrong. We must remember that the preceding 11 verses are full of commands. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, here comes the string of commands, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And it's after those commands that Paul offers this absolutely astounding encouragement. Paul says, in other words, hey, you Christians, labor and fight and strive in your sanctification by the grace of God and the power of his spirit. Oh, and by the way, the Lord is faithful to realize that which he has called you to. Let's look at our verses personal pronoun himself is fronted in the Greek text. It is the first word of the sentence in the Greek, and this emphasizes God as the subject. God himself, the focus is on God. Look at what God will certainly, surely do. And after commanding the church with that flurry of commands, Paul intensifies God as his subject. But this is not just any God. This is the God of peace. This is the God of peace. Peace really is a, a state of well-being, a, a state of wholeness, a state of shalom. God is always in a state of well-being. He is the immutable God. He is who he is, and he is always well. But get this, he offers that status to those who are his also. Oh, when we pray in faith and rest in faith in the God of peace, how certain it is that the peace of God rests upon us. It's a true statement. In the past year or so, I've sat alongside three different men, each of whom were told that they were going to die. Each of whom know this God of peace. And it's amazing to watch mature men of faith resting in the God of peace as they face death. This is the God of peace that we serve. He offers the peace that is within himself to those who are his. And Paul reminds the saints at Thessalonica that they serve the God of peace, and he says, may, may this God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify generally means to set apart for the purpose of holy use. And there's a sense in which we are sanctified in time at the first moment we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because once we trust in Jesus, we are immediately and forever set apart by God for his purposes. This is what's called positional sanctification. But there's another sense of sanctification. It is what we call progressive sanctification. 
Progressive sanctification is what Paul is talking about here in our text. Progressive sanctification is the process of becoming increasingly holy over time. Louis Burkhoff defines progressive sanctification this way. He says it is that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. Again, Burkhoff says progressive sanctification is that gracious and continuous uh, operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works, end quote. Beloved, progressive sanctification is a work of God within man. And yet, the redeemed person, the redeemed man, is called to partake in his sanctification through divine enablement. Simply put, we could say progressive sanctification is the process by which God transforms sinners into the image of his beloved son by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is speaking of, progressive sanctification. And even as Paul speaks of this progressive sanctification, he has this concept that it will come to an end at some point. This is what we might call glorification or perfected sanctification. He says, Paul, he says, uh, rather Paul says, sanctify you completely. He emphasizes this sanctification by adding, and may your whole spirit be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul now speaks of legal right standing. That is, in view of the second coming of Christ, Paul pronounces a blessing such that his readers might be kept from any legitimate ground of accusation. May he sanctify you completely, and may he keep you blameless. Paul exclaims, may the Lord sanctify you and keep you blameless as he anticipates the Lord's return. What an absolute blessing that is, but it's more than a blessing. Let's not get it twisted. Paul doesn't say, I surely hope that happens. There's no doubt in Paul's mind. This becomes utterly clear in verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This reminds us a lot of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, does it not? Where Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who started or began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? At the day of Jesus Christ. Beloved, hear me. The God who called the Christian to Christ does not leave the Christian to walk in his own strength or in his own power. Rather, the God who called the Christian to Christ also enables and strengthens and equips and sees to it that the Christian progresses in sanctification until that sanctification is complete at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way, He says, the same God who calls a Christian will perform sanctification by the Holy Spirit who indwells him. God is faithful to bring completion, to bring to completion the work he has begun in believers. God does not save a person by grace and then leave him alone to work out his Christian growth by works. As God calls and justifies by grace, he sanctifies by grace too. End quote. This is of vital importance. Everything else that I have to say this morning hinges on whether you believe this or not. Everything else that I have to say hinges on whether you believe this or not. Do you believe that God equips those whom he has called? Do you believe that God equips those whom he has called to salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, and that he sees to it that their sanctification is completed? If you don't believe that, you don't have much uh, 
power in your battery to keep going. I remember I was in a counseling situation with a brother years ago, and he was talking about the struggle, the Christian struggle. Now he's struggling with this sin, that sin for however many years, and I just listened to him for a while. And it dawned on me, he, he thinks that this is going to be his struggle until he dies and meets the Lord Jesus Christ. So I asked him, I said, brother, do you believe that this sin struggle is a sin that by the grace of God and power of the Spirit you can slay? He's like, no, this is the lot that the Lord has given me. So what do we do? We go to the text. We start working through verse by verse. Look what God says here. Look what God says there. Look what God says here. And slowly but surely, week after week, you can see the Spirit of God through the Word of God teach this brother such that he comes to the conclusion, I don't have to live in the midst of this struggle for the rest of my life. By the grace of God, by the power of God, through the Word of God, I can slay sin. If you don't realize that, then I have pity on you. God calls and equips those who he calls. If you believe that, and you must if you want to take living a holy life seriously, then when you fall, you'll be encouraged to get back up. It has been said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you remember that God's goal is your sanctification, that God has promised your sanctification, that God has equipped you in your sanctification, and Christian, you should be energized to kill sin by God's grace, for God's glory, for the benefit of those under your influence. Do you realize that your sin, your unrepentant sin, affects everyone around you? Everyone in your family, everyone in this church, everyone in your workplace, the world's going to tell you, no, as, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, you can go ahead and have it. There's no such thing as sin that doesn't hurt others. This is of vital importance that we're encouraged to fight and to never give up. So that's what I want to encourage you to do, Christian. Don't give up. Never give up. Rather remember this. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now this brings us to the main idea of today's sermon. Yes, that was all introduction. The rest of this sermon provides three pursuits or three deeds or three actions to achieve so that we might practically maximize God's certain goal of sanctification in our lives in the new year and every year. And what I simply want to do for the rest of our time in God's word is I want to briefly offer three encouragement from God's word. And what I want to do is I want to invite you to make these three texts your own in this new year. I want to invite you to memorize and to meditate and to pray and to apply and to study and to perhaps even put these texts up in your home. If you don't have a plan to intentionally focus upon and apply God's word in the new year for your sanctification, then consider taking these texts within this sermon, making them your own so that you might enlarge or magnify or maximize or emphasize God's certain goal of sanctification in your life. And I've outlined these three texts in the form of commands to help us remember the gist of each text. We're going to aim well. We're going to take a peek at 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to think well. We're going to look at Philippians 4. And we're going to be well from 2 Timothy chapter 2. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10, 
and then talk a little bit about this text. The Apostle Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing, on the one hand, to defend his authentic apostleship against those who call it into question. On the other hand, he is writing to express gratitude that a large portion of the Corinthian church had repented from their rebellion against him and their rebellion against his instruction. Beginning in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, the apostle begins to talk about new covenant gospel ministry and how glorious it is, the glory of new covenant ministry. And by chapter 4, verse 1, Paul comes to this conclusion. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. The statement, we do not lose heart, is the thread that ties the whole book together. We have in the book of 2 Corinthians an example of what it looks like not to lose heart in gospel ministry, in godly living, in circumstances that might invite us to give up. Paul doesn't lose heart. But why? Let's learn from the Apostle Paul for moment as we continue in chapter 4. He says, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's some accusations against Paul. Paul, your gospel is obscure. Paul, your, your gospel's veiled. Paul says, this is my ministry by the mercy of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And oh, by the way, if my gospel is obscure, it's because it's veiled, not because I can't communicate it accurately, not because I'm insufficient in the ministry that God has so graciously given me, but rather it's veiled to those who are children of Satan, to those who are perishing. I'm not gonna lose heart. Regardless of what you say about me and my ministry, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. We do not lose heart. And then, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, he gives us about 99 problems such that we might lose heart. That is, if we're not walking in the Spirit of God. Listen to what he says. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's so important for us to get. He has a proper perspective on who he is. He's God's vessel. He's God's tool. That the power of God might be on display despite what happens to him. He's not self-centered. Rather, he's others-oriented. And so listen to what he says in verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work, with it, work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believed and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pause here for a moment. I don't think it's unfair to say that Paul sees death in Christ as another joy. To live as Christ, to die is gain. We're wasting away, but it's for Jesus' sake. I'm expending myself so that the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified. I'm focused on you in the sense that I want you to honor Christ, to know Christ, to live for Christ. And by the way, as we do this ministry, as we speak and as we preach, we understand that grace extends to more and more people. For what purpose? So that it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's otherworldly thinking. That's otherworldly living. He tells us what his ultimate aim is in chapter 5. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He says in verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or as a down payment. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He just wants to be with Jesus. He's going to live his life for Jesus. He's going to think and speak for Jesus, knowing that God has secured in Christ Jesus eternal life so he doesn't bat an eye at death. And he tells us the motivating factor behind all of this, behind this difficult ministry in which they were afflicted and they were crushed and they were perplexed, but always with hope, such that they do not lose heart. He says in verse 9, so whether we're at home or away, whether we're alive or we're dead, in other words, we make it our aim to please him. The Greek term translated aim has the idea of having an ambition or considering it an honor or aspiring. The Greek text could literally be translated, so then we consider it an honor, whether being home or departing, to be pleasing to God. We just have to pause here for a moment. We need to humble ourselves. We need to ask God to make this increasing reality in our lives. Because if we're honest, there are times where we make it our aim to what? Please ourselves. That's what we call worldly living. But remember, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So we get up with texts like this. And we say, Lord, help me on this day to make it my aim to please you. And if and when I fall short, I know this promise, that you're faithful and you're surely going to do it. I'm going to slowly but surely grow in my ability to live a life pleasing to you. I'm going to slowly but surely grow in this concept and make it my own, that I count it an honor, that I count it an honor to be pleasing to you, O Lord. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This text introduces what's known as the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. We have to be understanding here that salvation is not what is at stake here. He's talking to Christians, and he's saying we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All Christians will have their deeds evaluated by Christ at this judgment. And the fact that Paul knew that he would appear before Christ to give an account of his life was a motivating factor for him. I think it should be for us as well. I think sometimes we can get into this situation where when we fall short or when we sin, we, if we think at all about being before the beam of seat of Christ, we tremble. And there's a sense in which we should tremble, but if we're children of God and if God doesn't leave his children as orphans, then this should be a motivating factor for us. There's going to be a day wherein I sit before the Lord. My life is going to be evaluated by him. So Lord, help me to remember that and to live for you in the moment. Help me to remember that and just like for Paul, respond by making it my, by making it my aim to please you, by counting in honor to be pleasing to you. In the face of hardship, Paul doesn't say, woe is me. Rather, he says, I will continue to make it my aim to please Christ, for I will appear before my Lord and commander and give an account. So I better remember that it is an honor. It is an honor to be pleasing to him even in the midst of hardship. Beloved, pursuit number one is simply this. Aim well. Aim well. This brings us to pursuit number two, think well. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, go ahead and turn there. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul writes to the church of Philippi to thank them for their support, and to provide an update on his circumstances in prison and to encourage them to joyfully pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he again comes with this string of commands. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then we have our verse, finally. There's one more thing that I want to communicate to you as we come to the end of these commands. Finally, brothers, that which is true, that would be that which corresponds to reality. That which is honorable, that would be that which is above reproach. Anything that's just, that which is right and fair. Anything pure, that, that which is holy. If there's anything lovely, that which is delightful in the sight of God and therefore delightful in the sight of his people. If there's anything commendable, that which is worthy of praise. If there's any excellence, that which is of exceptional virtue. If there's anything praiseworthy, that which is well praiseworthy. These things, if there's any of these things, think about these things. Beloved, we are, daily doesn't even cut it. Everywhere we look, we are offered and enticed 
and tempted to think about everything other than these things. However, we are commanded to think about these things. The word think is legitimai in the Greek. You can hear the word logic in there. It means to consider or to ponder or to dwell upon or to calculate with one's mind. The idea is that you have to be intentional. It's intentional, careful thought is what we're commanded to do. You can't just walk around, parade around, hey, whatever comes at me, don't know what to think about that, I'm being absent-minded. Christian, it's not an option for you to be absent-minded. Rather, you to be intentional. I say this for those of you who have sat under my teaching for any length of time, you've probably heard me say this. The battle is won or lost in the inner man, which includes one's mind or one's heart. What we dwell upon, what we give thought to, what we give intentional consideration to, manifests itself out of our fingertips, if you will. So if you're not thinking about these things, then you are thinking about something else and it will become evident in your life, whether subtly or drastically. Christian, you must think well. Pursuit number one is to aim well. Make it your aim to please God. Count it as an honor to be found pleasing to God. But if you're going to aim well, then you have to put it to practice. Aim is one thing. Doing is another. You have to aim and then think well. Beloved, think well. Lastly, Be well. Pursuit number three is be well. Turn to 2 Timothy, please, if you would. Aim well, think well, be well. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, beginning in verse 24. He says, in the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy to encourage and exhort Timothy to remain faithful to the end. Timothy's uh, discouraged, let's say. He's in Ephesus and things aren't going perhaps as well as he would like. And Paul writes, this is the last letter that Paul writes that's inscripturated. And Paul writes before he dies and he encourages his true son in the faith. The first thing he says is, in the Lord's servant, or in the Lord's slave. We immediately have to stop there. Are you servant of the Lord? Are you a servant of the Lord? We remember in Mark 10, Jesus say, says that he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason why he says that is because he's setting the example for his believers, for his disciples. Previous to that, he encourages them with this reality. Don't serve like the world serves, because the world doesn't serve. They're given any measure of authority, they laud it, and they show how powerful they are. That's not going to be so with my people. Rather, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. Unless and until we understand that the Christian call is a call to serve anyone we find before our eyes, we're going to have a hard time aiming well and thinking well. When I'm at my finest, and I get that knock on the door or that late night phone call, my heart's attitude is, how can I serve this person? When I'm not at my finest, 
You guys have experienced it, I'm sure. I, I want what I want. And I don't have this willing attitude to serve whoever's before me. We have to constantly and continually ask ourselves, do we appreciate and revel in this title? Kenny Kaufman, a servant of the Lord. Noah Batty, a servant of the Lord. Maggie Browning, a servant of the Lord. Do we appreciate that title? That we don't want to be served, but rather we simply want to serve the Lord by serving others. If you're a Christian, you're called to be a servant of the Lord. And he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. That's why we never lose hope. This is why we don't lose heart. God's at work in each and every one of you. On your worst day, I have hope because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have hope in me on my worst day too, please. So he says, the Lord's servant. And then he's going to give us a negative and a positive. He says, must not. So there's a negative statement. Then he says, must not be. And so this is a state of existence. This isn't just something that you do every once in a while. This is a state of, of being, a state of existence. He says, first, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This is one who is characterized as, as a fighter, one who engages in heated disputes. Right before this in verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Some of y'all like to talk about some things that maybe you don't need to talk about. We get down into the nitty-gritty, and if someone disagrees with us, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just calm down. We can disagree on some things and encourage one another, love one another, bless one another. There are some things that we cannot disagree on that still doesn't give us the right to be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And I want to be careful here because generally there's, there's two type of people and we want to be someone in the middle. There's people who love to run to conflict and there's people that love to run away from conflict. It's not good to be the person who enjoys running to conflict. What? Someone said something? Let's go. It's also not good to be the kind of person that runs away from conflict. We want to be people who, by the grace of God, filled with the Spirit of God, can step in to conflict and be what I like to call tranquillo. Just chill. I can talk, and I can speak the truth in love, and I can challenge you, and you can challenge me. Oh, Lord, help us. And at the end of the day, we affirm one another as brothers. I love, you guys know me. I'm not saying be dispassionate. That's not what I'm saying. We can have passion about the things that we love and about the word of God. We, we should be passionate about things, but we should not be quarrelsome, one who engages in heated disputes. So we must not be quarrelsome. Well, then, what should we be? He, he continues in verse 24, but kind to those who we get along with. But kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Sometimes I'm concerned that this is what many Christians are losing. And we can be angry at the evil all around us and run our mouths and spout things off in anger. We understand there's righteous indignation. We understand that we are to be angry and not sin. I understand those things. But we have to temper that with this text. That when we meet the Muslim, that when we meet the homosexual, that when we meet the transgender, that we see someone created in the image of God and that we communicate the truth and love. They might hate you for it, and we'll praise God for that. 
but they might not hate you for that. As you are kind, their mind might change. Wait a minute, you're, you're a Christian and you're acting kind to me? Wait, you're, you're a Christian and you're, you're caring for me? As you're able to teach and to reason and just say, this is what I believe and why I believe it, and we might not be on the same page, but I must be faithful to the one who's faithful to me. They may have never experienced that before. They're kind and they have convictions, but they can communicate those convictions in such a way that they're calling me to consider and reconsider my worldview. As we patiently endure evil, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's, we are open and honest about those things that God hates. We should hate what God hate, hates. We can communicate that. And then we correct. I love you to death, but you're wrong on this. And I would be denying my Lord and Savior if I affirmed what you're affirming. How much power there is in that? Someone who's able to communicate that with the love of Christ and be so clear about what they believe, why they believe it. And I love what Paul says after this. Why do we want to conduct ourselves in this way? Well, one thing is you don't know the future. I, I don't know what the Lord's going to do with the people that he sets before me. And Paul simply says that. That's not for you to know, but this might be an outcome. He says, picking up in verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What I love about this text is one, it challenges me. But two, it calls me to remember that God granted me repentance. There's a time where I was that person. I was in the snare of the devil. I wasn't in a right census. But the word of God is more powerful than the will of man, amen? As the word of God is communica communicated, we don't know what's going to happen. It's our job to simply scatter the seed of truth and to say, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Beloved, we must be well. I invite you to make these texts your own in the new year. I invite you to aim well. I invite you to think well. I invite you to be well. For he who called you is faithful. And your sanctification is certain. He will surely do it. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the truth of your word. How it challenges, encourages, and convicts us. And Lord, our desire is that you would help us. To revel in the reality that you are a faithful God who sanctifies those whom he has called and you equip those whom you have called to be about your business. So help us in the new year and every year to make it our aim to please you, to, to, to think about the things that we are to think about that honor you and to live as servants of the Lord. Do this for your glory. Do this for our good. Do this for the well-being of those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.